These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Periton Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai. We thought with Barbara that the best way maybe to start this very informal conversation, this is not an academic lecture, uh, this is, we wanted it to be quite lively, and I thought that the best uh, start would be to start to ask Barbara how you met uh, the work of Hans Hartung, in which conditions, and uh, how come this work became singular and of interest uh, for you, I guess. That was an interesting story for me, but I think people would like to, to hear it. Thank you. Yes. It was, um, I thought this was sort of a thrilling opportunity because it was kind of a nostalgia thing for me. We discovered Hartung in really in the mid-70s in the Febre Gallery, and, and we became very interested in his work and also in the, the Cobra artists and people surrounding him. Um, so that was mainly how I came upon it, and, and then he fits into sort of the sort of work that interests me always, mm. which is, but the, it's somewhere between drawing and painting, and uh, and it's kind of ephemeral in certain ways, and yet at the same time it's very strict. So I, I found that especially interesting, and I'm very mm. glad to see it again. Good, good. And you? How oh, did you? Uh, it's, it's, yeah, basically, I was born in 1976, mm -hmm. so it took me quite a while to, to, to get uh, <laughs> interested. Uh, but uh, as a matter of fact, I did my master um, uh, thesis a long, long time ago on, on uh, ABEX, uh, and uh, of course, I had to see um, over you know a few biographies and Artung was very interesting one but at, at the same time my attention was more on people like Rothko, uh, Pollock of course and some other more forgotten painters like Canadian painters of Le Refus Global, uh, think about Riopelle, Borduas, <laughs> like many names that are pretty unknown right now and I thought Artung was kind of too obvious and maybe I misread the uh, the work I have like everyone I was you know just you know seeing works from the post-war period which which were interesting but kind of they all did not that good and uh, to be honest I stayed on this aspect what yeah. was a long time ago uh, and uh, many years after that, many years after my uh, PhD thesis, uh, I, I just left my uh, position at the Sorbonne as an you know, assistant professor uh, to, uh, to go in a center called the Deutsches Forum für Kunstgeschichte, which is basically the, uh, like the uh, German Villa Medici, and it, it happens to be in Paris. So I was a research fellow there, and they told me, you are a contemporary art historian, you have to go to the uh, Artung Foundation, I mean the Artung Bergman Foundation in the south of France, in Antibes. How come you've never been there? I said, okay, I'm gonna go there. But I wasn't excited, I was flattered. I mean, it's a great, you know, Artung was something in the history of art for everyone, but it wasn't thrilling. 
there was no rediscovery possible for me. It was just, okay, let's see the, the old master's house and see what it gives. And then when I got there, I was really uh, uh, taken in good hands, as we say, yeah. uh, by the, uh, the last assistant of the master, uh, Jean-Luc Hureau, who is here, <laughs> and Bernard Derderion, who is there too. Uh, and uh, they basically took me into the, uh, uh, you know, the sacred space, like in a church, the core. <laughs> uh, and so I got the uh, amazing opportunity uh, to see the, the paintings, all the periods. And it was a huge shock, actually. Uh, I realized how uh, wrong I was on my opinion on the artist. And it really started here, so I, I wanted to inv uh, invite him in a few exhibitions. He didn't went, you know, because of organization, because I changed my mind. But we, were, we wanted to do something together. Uh, so basically that's, um, you know, how it started. And uh, it's, you know, nice story. It's a nice story. <laughs> For me, it is. Well, I came in at it from the small things, mainly, you know, from drawings mm. and prints and things like that. and the sort of close mm. readings, things, and seeing all these paintings here. Mm. Is, is that, I, I mean, you can see where it comes from that, but it was astounding to me and seeing all the color. And, uh, and what also interests me is how much he sort of evokes other artists before and after. So you see in the late works, someone like Via Selman in, mm. the, in, in the spray painted works and, and the celestial sort of feeling of them, even though they come from a very different you know, point. Um, and then you see, you look back and you see Sam Francis and people like that. And, and, yet, and yet he maintains his individuality throughout it all. Mm. But, but that's what, I mean, it interested me how he goes all these different ways and yet he's a very distinctive artist of a specific period. Mm. with a strong core, a kind of strict mm. structure that sort of belies you know, the ebullient abstraction that you expect. Mm. So uh, may, may could you tell a bit, a bit more words for our friends on the, uh, on the tension between this kind of will, my wilderness state, the doesn't make sense, wildness, yeah. and the uh, very uh, uh, temper, uh, moderated control aspect of his works, especially in drawings, because I was interested in the drawings, but to be honest, this is the missing part of this show. I had to make some choices and I preferred showing the final works, the paintings, and then, uh, let's say, not as important categories as photographs or uh, etchings. But there was, of course, the in-between category, which is the drawing part, but maybe it's an occasion to uh, say a few words on this. Well, I suppose one thinks when you look at many of those drawings, you think of Paul Clay, hmm. you know, and you think of his prints, and, um, and they're very, it's kind of, they, they describe psychological states too, I think. There's a kind of, you know, intensity and a kind of analysis, self-analysis that goes into the way it's shaped. Um, and yet the, 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 the strict structure, which you don't expect, mm. just makes it interesting. Mm. I don't know what to say about that. There is an interesting, yeah, there is an interesting, that's an interesting aspect because 
uh, be, uh, beneath every composition and Artung, where even if it looks like totally chaotic, there is a kind of a secret order. Uh, he, was, uh, he was fascinated uh, mostly in the 1920s, then he gave up by the golden section and okay. he's been doing extensive researches on the golden section, which is kind of a, you know, it's like uh, reporting, uh, uh, you know, uh, works on paper to canvases as it is. It, it sounds like something from the Renaissance, actually, the golden section, everything. Uh, but even in the late 19th century and early 20th century, many artists were still evolving in that um, thing. But it, it kind of went totally abandoned, uh, let's say, after Mondrian. Yeah. which was finding something else actually. Uh, the 1950s are the great years where the golden section is kind of outcast of uh, contemporary painting. Uh, but he, was, he did extensive, you know, because he tried to find the, uh, let's say, the, uh, uh, the logic of beauty, of visual beauty. Uh, and he did so many uh, fascinating studies. The foundation in the south of France uh, that is keeping extensive record of his life, of course, except the war years that have been really you know, problematic for his career because he lost so many things, but except this very moment, uh, which um, they, uh, the archives are a bit uh, sparse, right. uh, you have amazing things, including a few uh, drawings, uh, you know, when you, will, you really feel the geometry, but it's really complex. It's not just a few lines to see the clarity of golden number, uh, the golden section. It's really complex. I mean, it's interlaced. It goes in every direction. You have so many lines. It becomes so complex. And it basically, you have the seeds of right. what was to come. And, and it's really drawing, actually, the graphic aspect of his work might be uh, of some interest for you. I mean, the, the, the link with Many people say it's about ideograms from you know Asia, but he always said like, yeah, no, this is different. It has similarities, but I, I didn't look closely at Asian ideograms to do my paintings and my drawings and my etchings. So maybe in terms of drawing, what could it bring to you? Well, just incising the paper. I mean, basically, mm. so it's very direct from from brain to hand mm. to paper, and I think. Uh, it's very forceful. Mm. Um, so it's just it's just showing his ideas that way, you know. I think um, I think what's sort of interesting too is, is how he related to the other artists. Then you know, someone like Pollock, someone like um, uh, <coughs> Twombly, or some. So do you have. You have a very distinctive style within that mm. whole conversation, and also how he relates to the uh, Cobra artists. But they're much more spontaneous, I think. Mm. They, they're consistently more spontaneous, and they're more interested in the art brood, more. Uh, mm. um, but that's, I mean, I think of him that way. Mm. Mm. It's, a, it's pretty interesting to see, uh, I think it's a constant of the whole work, actually. Uh, I've given the title of the exhibition on this basis of uh, not only a contrast, a dialectic, but an oxymoron, basically, between two notions that are opposite. Yeah. Uh, to make it simple, uh, chaos and order. 
and how all his life you couldn't see uh, any painting, any work on paper, any etching, even photograph without thinking of uh, uh, an order, an order. Uh, uh, behind, actually, hidden order, actually. Uh, it, it was funny, it's funny to see uh, when he was working, most of the time it was at night, very late, with loud music, mostly Bach, as I've heard from my friends at the foundation, and he was working pretty late, and in the morning, with clear ideas, he was basically rearranging stuff. Uh, so you have different steps. You have very organized brain. You have, according to me and many uh, uh, commentators, like a very strong uh, character. I mean, a guy who is basically very physical. And of course, it was pretty much diminished after World War II, okay. where he lost a leg on the battlefield fighting with the ally on the Allied side against the uh, uh, Nazis, uh, so basically... Like saving he, him. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, he was saving uh, soldiers, actually. Uh, so, um, you know, he was, you know, he was touched by, when he was carrying uh, a um, hurt soldier, actually, mm -hmm. on, on a carriage thing. Uh, so he, when he went back, he was pretty much uh, diminished physically, and uh, all his energy that you can uh, feel when you read his autobiogra autobiography called self-portrait, self autoportrait, uh, you can feel it because he was, uh, he, he liked to swim, he, uh, he went uh, swimming at night in the sea, uh, almost got drowned like two times, uh, he was very extreme climbing mountains, you know, like very extreme experience with his own body, meeting the strength of the elements, the waves, the, the weather, the wind, everything is very... And when he lost his leg, actually, it became really handicapped. And I have, sometimes I have the feeling that there is a kind of a, a transcription of all this frustrated energy on, on the canvas. I mean, it would be hard not to see the work on this well, You actually side. do have, when you think of all the, the uh, lines, the furious lines, mm. and in those, you really see the, the turbulence underneath, even though that's mm. a very formal structure mm. for it. Turbulence, yeah. I, th that's I a good think word. that's... Um, and he was kind of angry, wasn't he? Uh, apparently, he was not an angry person. Uh, had happened, chance had the change to medium, of course, but apparently he was more like a very strong character, actually, and, uh, and uh, but no, apparently no, he was not, he oh. was not like a romantic figure as Pollock, you know, getting drink, you know, right. getting into fights, it was not that much, actually, but he was pretty strong character, that's for sure, uh, pretty convinced that he was yeah. on the right way, <laughs> but you need that when you're an artist, you know. I mean, it's sort of interesting considering, too, his, uh, his, his style in relation to some of the, you know, someone like Gorky or someone, in, and the, the kind of wild canvases, mm. and yet his, I don't know where I'm going with this exactly, but there was, a, <laughs> I mean, somehow that came to mind, but mm. his were, are so much more controlled. But, but there were those forms out there sort of mm. fighting. Yeah, it doesn't look control, but it is. But yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned Gorky because uh, Gorky is one of the examples that are regularly quoted in, uh, in the articles on, Al on Artung uh, to, to show that many American artists from the School of New York were surrealist before yeah. being 
abstract um, and called abstract expressionist and and basically they were like surrealist related until the early 40s uh, since uh, Hautung was purely abstract since almost 20 years actually uh, with their uh, as you might have seen the first uh, one of the first uh, watercolor that we that I've included in the, uh, at the beginning of the exhibition uh, there is all, all this here actually you have the uh, liquid quality you have the absence of subject you can't recognize anything it's just uh, forms that are basically floating on the surface of uh, the paper uh, so he never he never had this surrealist face uh, face so that's how, because always scholars try to compare, and I, I do too, you do too, uh, European school to American school, uh, but this is a major difference. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. They, they, they didn't really go through surrealism in Europe, and, and Artung did them as well. But he began purely with, for, as an abstractionist, which is unusual, right? I mean, he doesn't, didn't begin with a figurative drawing, he didn't mm. begin, he didn't strip down. Exactly. He started right in the middle. He had an, intu is, he had an intuition. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that made it kind of interesting. I mean, you don't sort of look for the figure in his work. That's what distinguishes him from a lot of American abstractionists, I think, of that time. And, you, and you know, uh, it distinguishes him uh, from many, many artists, before and after. All the, uh, the names I've been quoting of the artists who invented basically the first, first line of abstract art around 1912 were figurative before. And then they kind of, as you say, they stripped the mm -hmm. subject. And, but also after, after Artung, you know, for example, I remember uh, uh, so, uh, 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 noticing at the time that uh, Yves Klein was immediately abstract. <laughs> he was the, you know, was the son really? of Marie Raymond, who was already a well-known uh, abstract painter. Yeah. So, it, but it, I mean, it, 30 years after uh, Artung. So Artung uh, had kind of an intuition. And what, what is very interesting is that he had no idea about abstract art, as he said. Uh, uh, when he was 18 years old, he just had been studying old masters and trying to get the... Uh, uh, what's, what was the better of the form out of the subject? Uh, seeing uh, right. shadows, seeing you know blurry forms out of figurative painting. It, right. it you know it kind of did the stripping, but out of other classical artists. Right. So yeah, that, that that's surprising. Oh, not to mention he kept doing a few uh, works that are figurative. You can find portraits, you can find landscapes. Uh, throughout the, the 20s, there are still many, uh, not that many paintings, but many works on paper from this uh, period that are, oh. he didn't gave up on representation, but the main, I mean, his main goal, he was more destructive. The main goal was really abstract art, and, and this on a very early basis. His most interesting, so, was not long, he, he didn't refuse, you know, and every abstract artist I know is still painting uh, objects that you can recognize. I mean, it's not, it's not a religion, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not a rapture at all with uh, representation, of course, but the main core of the work is definitely non-figurative and hence abstract. So, so maybe you could uh, 
I'd like to hear more maybe about the 1975, maybe uh, how was the exhibition at uh, Lefebvre? 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 Uh, Lefebvre. 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 Sorry, Lefebvre. sorry for Lefebvre. my... Lefebvre. 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 You know, I don't remember everything in this show. But what was the global <laughs> thing? Yeah, I know, ago, but it was a sort of the, you know, the, mainly the the drawing quality and the the ex, you know expressiveness of the drawings mm. and the um, you know I really don't I mean I, I know be, I was very impressed with mm. it but I can't remember everything that was in it to the, the tell you about it I don't no no don't worry no no it's a, and but it's interesting to put maybe but this uh, exhibition uh, as I re as I've seen that was pretty complete in terms of uh, history. There was a pretty wide uh, spectrum of years and decades. It had, works. yes, but um, the m mostly small works. Mostly, uh, yeah, mostly small you know, works. So, mm -hmm. and is it, wasn't that at the same time that the Met was having the show That's it. of big paintings, new paintings, and very that, recent ones? Yeah, yeah, and that Hilton Kramer damned, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's in the Times. He, yeah, from, yeah. Um, so yes, that was kind of strange, and that hurt his reputation a lot. Of course, yeah. Maybe you can say more, a few words about the context exhibition. Well, just that it hurt his reputation because um, that was just the only concept people had of him. It was mm. new work. They didn't know his work in general. They didn't know who he was. So then when they read that, they just didn't know where to plug into understanding him. They weren't interested to begin with. Mm. Um, and then Hilton Kramer certainly was kind of a controversial figure himself. And uh, it was really rather unfortunate. And the Lefebvre's basically were very solid and they had a, you know, they, they had an academic interest in everything too and they, they, and, and they were very conscientious that way. Um, I don't know. So, so I mean, th I think that would have been the real show, and the show mm. at the Met was a sidebar. And <laughs> but as as great as these paintings are, mm. it really doesn't tell you the heart of it. I mm. think. Yeah, that that was a complex. Uh, it's very important, actually, if we want to look at Artung today to consider this episode, because it why it had a tremendous impact on. Uh, the rest of the career, uh, worldwide, so sort of. Uh, he was well, I mean, he was in <coughs> every major American uh, museum, in every major collection, and this exhibition at the Met should have been like consecration, I mean? Yeah. Like, and a lot of honor, and it didn't go that way, actually, because uh, my opinion is that he chose with uh, uh, Gedzaler, Henri Gedzaler, who was the curator of the show, he chose mm -hmm to uh, exhibit only very recent, as you said, large, pretty pop paintings, actually. Some of them you can see, you can see at NAMAD Contemporary right now. I didn't include so much of this period because I'm not that fond of them, but they are interesting, actually. They are very, like, you know, strange, bright colors, right. uh, pretty, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a different came discourse. Along with a pop mentality. Yeah, that was that was a strange period in his own career. These are very bizarre uh, paintings in his own career. So I was so risky to show only this short time frame and this short uh, um, aesthetic, actually, and and making people believe uh, the great audience, of course, but some 
art critics like Kramer who were already like, as you said, predisposed. Yeah, but he, the problem is that he published his article and it took two weeks, <laughs> which is a long time, uh, for other really nice articles by other critics uh, that were really laudative. They were really like, you know, acknowledging the, you know, the artist, not the last works, but the whole career. Uh, and right. and, and, uh, and Getzeller said, yeah, but in the catalog, you have a whole spectrum of history, but you know, <laughs> it was only in the catalog. The exhibition must have told a longer story. Why do you think he would have done that though? Why would he have chosen that? There are plenty of reasons actually. Uh, for me, the most acceptable reason is the, you know, artists, you know, they are, many of them are deeply persuaded that the best works they've ever done is yesterday. <laughs> that's, of course, that's normal because, you know, that's evolution. And sometimes uh, that's, the word, that's the job of curator to say, whoa, whoa, come, don't, you know, right. <laughs> relax. <laughs> you can, you know, you can show more, you know, like uh, the rest is good too, you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, and I think uh, also there are uh, other reasons. He was working with the Galerie de France, with which he had a very, you have mm -hmm. to imagine that Hartung was one of the most expensive artists, you know, at the time on the world. He was one of the most uh, acknowledged. And he was in position of force against right. his powerful gallery anyway. And uh, they had a very big contract. They were like, in, they were in economic difficulties. There was the crash of 974. It was complex. So he had basically to sell, uh, they had to sell the work. So I think there was kind of a, a strange mixture. Um, speaking here under the control of the foundation, but I think there was, might been, it might have been one of, the, mm, one of the elements, but I'm pretty sure that he just wanted to show the last four years of his already pretty long career. And, and not, never forget too that he was attacked by one critic, <laughs> and one critic only, but very prominent and very early. <laughs> so it was a you know, deadly bite. Uh, and, and two weeks after that, the other, all the other articles didn't say the mm -hmm. thing. But it's interesting. I mean, like every great artist in art history knows this kind of, you know, difficult moment. But we are all lucky that history of art usually cool things down and say, this is a moment, explain things. But um, yeah. Well, it seems like such a, an unusual thing for the Met to do too, to have yeah. a contemporary artist, you know, that way. Not only because it's just the yeah. late work, but just to have a contemporary artist. Of course, of that, course. You know, that seems to be a more modern thing that they're of doing. Course. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, that was strange. The whole thing was strange. Yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, so, uh, that's pretty interesting because after that, there have been several exhibitions, like a lot, but not on the same, you know, check, it was kind of uh, underrated from then. So it's been like, so not four years that it's been complex, but uh, that's a lot. I mean, he never, it's hard to say he disappeared like far from it. And uh, something important too, he, he was pretty clever and then with his wife and Iva Bergman, when uh, they died, uh, they, uh, and before they died, they thought about uh, conceiving a foundation. They didn't have any children. Right. Uh, so, their main children was their work, 
common work. And there was the foundation in the south of France. And so basically they, they put all their energy, energy to, uh, uh, to store things for scholars. I mean, when I went there, uh, I was among many, many people from many museums coming here to study the works <laughs> and being hosted, actually. It was a wonderful tool uh, to, um, to show what it is about, whether you like it or not. It's there. It's, it's amazing. So um, that, that's another change. They, they kind yeah. of, uh, and that, that's very important, actually, because uh, you can still see the work. He preserved lots of works that you can see here. I mean, the main part of the loans come from the foundation. You have the MoMA, of course, you have right. the old Bright Knox, but the main loans from the foundations because Artung wanted the works, you know, to stay in the, in the same place, uh, to be uh, conserved correctly. Uh, all the works here look like fantastic. Uh, you have to know that he was working with uh, restorers like the best of the time, with the people working at the Louvre, to have the best varnishes, uh, to have the best paintings, to have the best canvas, the best stretchers. Uh, and to be honest, he had the money to... Uh, but I know many artists making a lot of money who buy like just yeah. cheap canvases and cheapest And they were complex uh, varnish. materials he, because he, he mixed them up. He mixed I them mean, up, were... but always mastered actually. Yeah. And he has very precise recipe for everything, for every color, every fluidity, because it's very, fluidity is so important in his, his work. It's, everything is always liquid somehow. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I think that's one of the reason his fascination for the liquid elements uh, or even aerial elements, clouds, uh, is that they are not built. It, uh, his logic, very uh, rational logic, was sometimes compared to maybe not conceptual art, but at least geometric art and geometric abstraction or uh, constructivist art. But it's no, so it never builds this way. It, there is never right angles, there is never right. uh, straight lines, it's never parallel to the canvas. It's always, you know, moving by moving a upward. You move, moving <laughs> moving upward. Moving uh, upward. <coughs> unstable. Uh, and <coughs> me. and uh, I remember I, I was initially like a scholar on kineticism, perceptual art, like mm -hmm. basically instability. I was really, uh, uh, it was really uh, strong to me, this kind of permanent movement. And he was in many exhibitions on the movement. He wasn't a kinetic artist, he wasn't a perceptual artist. doesn't make that right. much sense to put it, I don't know if James Torrell or I don't know Julio Le Park, doesn't make sense. But he, he had uh, all the paintings are instability that are that is conceptually and physically contained by the canvas, yeah. the trace, the action, and at the same time when you look at it, you feel it. You see, you know, we didn't talk about it. Just occurred to me that kind of sculptural component, and he did sculpt, and a little. He did one sculpture, but it, it is interesting, actually, in 1938, yeah. with Julio Gonzalez, actually. Right. It, it's a nice thing, actually, because uh, it's about drawing into space as well. Yeah. There are mostly lines and planes that are I curved. didn't realize that was the only yeah. one. Yeah, 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 no. Because kind of one thinks of this sort of in, the, in some of the paintings and the balance between the gesture and the sculptural quality. Mm. Yeah. The idea of the trace is important, too, actually. That, and what, what, what I've liked particularly 
uh, not to, to oppose you know your your intuition but uh, his paintings are when you go around for example here in the exhibition but in general are amazingly flat it's almost uh, um, you know images when you compare to other uh, artists whether they are European or American yeah. okay uh, you can see a lot of matter uh, you can see a lot of thickness because the, the there is a lot of oil there is a lot of acrylic you know like you can see the brush strokes it's kind of relief when you look uh, closer you know on the border of the paintings you can see a lot of relief when you look at Artung <laughs> it's amazingly flat it was really working on really flat layers the complexity of his work comes from the superimposed and interlaced layers right. of paintings that are basically communicating uh, one with the other. Uh, that's, he regularly spoke about um, not superimposed grids, but about, I don't know the name in English, glacis. It's a very classical, nobody knows the name in English, I'm varnish. sorry. Varnish. Yeah, hey, it's more complex than varnish, actually. It's basically Glacine. the... Glaze? Glazing. Glazing, yeah. So basically, uh, he, he was very, uh, um, he looked very close to, uh, I don't know, Greco, uh, Rembrandt, to understand, you know, the, the layers, even Da Vinci, just to understand the uh, superimposed layers of glaze, to, uh, you know, to capture the light, uh, and also the eye, actually, to make uh, the painting look real. Uh, but even on that, actually, he was uh, deeply persuaded that uh, the superimposed grids that you can see in the early works around 1950 that are in the first rooms uh, could be replaced with more complex <coughs> structures, uh, mostly sprayed uh, colors. Uh, and the multiple dots tiny, tiny dots, mm -hmm. uh, were for him much more convincing and much, and much less obvious than the dots uh, that are done one by one uh, with uh, a brush that you can find in neo-impressionist paintings, uh, pointillist paintings. Think about Seurat. He was, he was like, yeah, those guys are just making optical illusion, it's artificial, it doesn't work. The uh, layers of sprayed painting of, of millions of droplets uh, do the same effect of transparencies between the several mm -hmm. layers. The, the, yeah, there is the drawing, there is the design, there are the lines interlaced, you see, and there is the uh, those basically, um, uh, I don't know, see-through uh, layers. Uh, logic actually that is very strong so it's uh, it's always about the uh, depth of the plane uh, I remember reading uh, uh, Arod Rosenberg in 1952 speaking about I don't remember I remember the French expression but not the English one which is very bad <laughs> I'm so sorry about that uh, uh, but basically I would retranslate in English as thin space uh, uh, espace maigre, meager space, like a space uh, represented, I mean, an artistic space, aesthetic space, which is not depth, which is not perspective, and which is not flat, something in between. Uh, and Rosenberg was speaking basically about the interlaced grids of the uh, final paintings by Mondrian, you know, especially the New York series where 
the superimposed grids are not that superimposed. They are interlaced, creating a space that is pretty, pretty ambiguous, which is not depth and not flatness. Yeah. And he was speaking, of course, of Mondrian to explain the, uh, um, the drippings of Pollock and how there were uh, basically fishing nets and the fish was the eyeball of the spectator that was trapped in between uh, this, uh, trapped in this, uh, yeah, I mean, this uh, grid actually, this grids, uh, right, interlaced grids. holding it together. Yeah, yeah. It makes something very interesting about the notion of, very well-known notion of the modernist grid uh, that Rosalind Krauss spoke extensively about. Having this kind of, uh, you know, like, basically, I don't know, um, surfaces, not, mm -hmm. not structures, right. but surfaces. I mean, uh, clouds, flat clouds that are basically allowing you to see other clouds and other backgrounds. Um, that, 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 that's very crucial, but not, I don't want to be too precise, actually, no, but, but too like, specific, good. but <laughs> I think that's an interesting way to understand his work now. But maybe uh, you, 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 you told a few things about uh, the way he was a precursor and at the same time um, he was hard to compare with previous artists. He did his own language. Every decade he was kind of transforming his own practice and uh, having a huge influence. Uh, I remember when I discovered the, the, the work in the south of France at, the, at, mm -hmm. this, at the, this former studio, it was striking. I was seeing, I don't know, uh, Wade Guyton yeah. <laughs> for, you know, yeah. the Epson series just in the back here. I was like, because he painted with big rolls that were used for prints. I mean, mm -hmm. like a printer, you know, prints. I mean, it's the same, but he was holding it by hand. Of course, this is not the same thing. Uh, when I saw the, uh, the very uh, colored uh, works on the other wall over there, I thought about, um, sorry, we talked about them. I have a memory. Sam Francis? Oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, Sam Francis, but very contemporary. And uh, Wolfgang Tillmans is oh, abstract, yeah, you know, cameraless theory. It is striking. Uh, I've told you that, but I, I've been showing as a test to friends knowledgeable in art. You know, did you see that? They say, oh, that's a nice Tillmans. <laughs> <laughs> and I was saying, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> it's not. It's uh, a painting that is more than 40 years old. Uh, by Hans Hartung, Hans Hu. <laughs> so, uh, there, there are many, uh, think about Katharina Karen Gross, uh, think about, oh, yes. yeah, there's so many exactly. actually painters. Uh, Christopher Wool is the biggest fan on earth of Hans Hartung. Is he? Yeah, he's, he. he's been spend, spending you know, extensive time at the foundation, uh, going through the archives and the paintings and speaking with uh, our friend Jean-Luc Bernard. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible, and that's, I think that's the best way to see what if an artist is historical or not, is his hairs, his influence, actually. Um, and not only is, you know, friends, Mark Rothko, or right. his Abex, you know, colleagues, so sort of. No, this is, I mean, he really, we think of him with a kind of limited style when we, and we have a vision of him and the work he does. And, I, and with me, it's usually these striated things, the things where we cut into the, mm. you know, and, and that's sort of the, the sort of signature mm. thing that you think about. 
and yet really he partook of all kinds of abstraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and you know alluded to you know obviously all those artists, and mm. you would think this looks so much like so and so, and this looks so much like so and so, and then. But carrying it forward mm. is the curious thing, and I don't think that most of these artists are taking from him so much. As I think it's more a coincidence of course, that yeah. there's. I mean, I may be wrong. No, no, but you know but about influence. You know, sometimes it's uh, direct. Yeah. So I, I remember one of the main influence of uh, uh, Jesus Rafael Soto, Soto uh, yeah. was uh, White Square. Uh, White on White Square by Malevich, 1915, mm -hmm. because he saw uh, a reproduction in white and black and white, like let's say in grey, <laughs> you know, few shades of grey, uh, in the uh, uh, from the late 40s. He discovered that in 1915. He was really influenced uh, by this tiny image, you know, in this manual of history of art, and uh, and he, the, and also the name. And you basically couldn't even see the, uh, you know, the first square within the square. Right. I mean, it was. He told me that I, I had the chance to to spoke to speak uh, uh, with Soto, and he told me too that he was really disappointed when he went to New York in 1965 to see the real painting on the MoMA. <laughs> <laughs> it looked, yeah, trivial, like painterly, uh, not. Uh, <laughs> painterly yeah, I mean, I mean what I imagine was magical. So. <laughs> You know, just to say that uh, influence is not always through, you know, having been the assistant of, uh, not having been an extensive scholar on an artist and then, uh, but sometimes uh, just seeing an image here or there uh, is very, it can be very influenced. It's subliminal sometimes. Yes, yeah, subliminal. It's not intentional. I mean, yep. it, you know, the best kind of influences come to you. But sometimes you can, uh, another, Interesting art story, and I close this uh, this uh, part. But uh, I remember uh, uh, Eric de Chassé, which is uh, an art historian, specialist of Abex. Mm -hmm. uh, is a French scholar, but he's been studying extensively here, mostly on the influence of uh, Matisse on American Abex. And uh, he told me once that uh, for years, um, uh, Ellsworth Kelly who went to France actually uh, as uh, with his um, uh, you know, military uh, grant actually. Uh, he could go wherever he wanted mm -hmm. and as many artists, they went to Paris, which was the place to be at the time. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, in 1959, uh, you find uh, hard edge paintings in his works, uh, in uh, Kelly's works, uh -huh. uh, 51, sorry. And, um, and everybody say, oh, you must have seen Matisse uh, cut papers like papier découpé, like with hard, hard edge. And say, yeah, but later on in 58, 59, yeah, sure, but I did the same thing at the same moment. But I, I, oh, if I, in fact, yes, there are many common points, but later on. And he, he pretended that like for decades. And Eric de Chassé <laughs> was looking through his archive didn't find anything to contradict. And then he looked into Alain O'Day's archives, and they were, I think, in Australia. It was his former boyfriend, 
and he found two letters, two letters uh, by Kelly saying to uh, Naudet, you have to come to Paris, see the papier découpé, and we were in 1951. <laughs> so it's always, you know, you have to listen to artists and at the same time, you, yeah, you better temper what they say, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, uh, it's all uh, just to close that episode. It, it, it's always about the game of influence, of course. Uh, it's complex, actually, and sometimes you do uh, uh, something without copying it, just because yeah. it's in the air, uh, you know, because you look at the same sources, sometimes decades after that, and you find it's like taking the same elements and making yes. the same recipe but by chance, but you've taken the same elements, the same, you know, vegetable, meat, whatever. Do you know who falls okay. into that category? Henri Michel. That he's sort of behind everything. I don't think people even realize it. And you always go through a show and you say, hmm, that looks like Henri mm. <laughs> Michel. And yet, I, probably, it's not intentional. It wasn't intentional, I mean, maybe, but, but he was sort of. Oh, he, he an was abiding a, influence. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, been, he's, he's been looked a lot at Michel yeah. at the time. Uh, if I, next time I do an exhibition on Abex or something, I sure have Henri Michaud in the same uh, position as, I don't know, Pollock, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether this is not the same, you know, big canvases, right. uh, this is not the same ambition. He was mostly a poet, he was a writer. Uh, I named my own son after Henri as because of Henri Michaud. I'm a huge fan. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, this. Um, you, know, you could think about Orimatis too, but something else. Uh, no, no, but uh, Michio, just to come back to Michio. Oh. Excuse me. Don't worry. Uh, so, so Michio is very important as well. Like, I think Michio was more into the kind of greed logic. Uh, you don't see that much greed like mm -hmm. all over logic. Michaud is closer to Pollock than it is from Artung, in a way. Um, because the, uh, when you look at every painting by uh, Artum, there is no all over. That's one of the main differences with Pollock, for example. He's not yeah. covering the whole thing, you know. Uh, he is he, always, you know, uh, attracted by the main move, the main central motion, actually. Uh, okay. There's kind of uh, immaterial figure that is there. It could be, you know, uh, compared to a cloud, uh, to a storm, uh, to a, a light bolt, to a, a volcano, of course, to a tree, you know, name it. But it's kind of, it's kind of not subject orientated. Yeah. But he's not uh, into yeah, right. the, you know, uh, the greed totally. Even if, you know, obviously some motives go out of the canvas. When you go, when you go at the found, when you visit the foundation, uh, the main place where he was painting is still in the state it was when he, he died. And you have paintings all over the walls, mostly because the last years he was using these uh, uh, pump... Uh, the spray thing? Yeah, but the things that yeah. you use for a hose for, you know, putting some... Uh, the garden. Gardener thing, you yeah. know. And, and it was going everywhere. So all the walls are here. So it, it, it wasn't that... Uh, subject centered on the no no that no, no, it was spreading around of course and funny thing too he was keeping at the time the leftovers so oh. the you know the papers on the floor even right. some 
wood panels on the wall that he's been storing actually. So when you go to the studio, you have one configuration of the studio at a given moment, but you could have just by reinstalling other panels and other configuration. I told you, he was keeping everything. <laughs> but it, which is great for posterity, actually. Definitely. I don't know how I went on this. We, I, I digressed. I digressed quite a lot. That's interesting. What do you mean? This is sort of like Pollock, didn't Pollock? Well, I, it's yeah. all it's left, but I don't know. Yeah, like, but let's say like uh, the guy who basically was anterior to Pollock uh, did some went further than Pollock when he was 85 on his wheelchair with uh, you know garden tools. <laughs> And at the time, he basically couldn't move his, his body, actually. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't even get in a swimming pool by himself. Uh, he was really diminished. And he kind of uh, makes the, uh, his first you know, uh, instincts. Yeah. You know, invented some uh, really uh, you know, vertical drippings in around 1938. That's why I showed this uh, little work uh, on black and white. When you can see the drops, of matter like exploding like that. This is pure uh, dripping. Many years after uh, Pollock, we always think about André Masson dripping some sand on the paintings. But let's mention Artung too right now. I think we, we, we can. It's authorized. Uh, history of art is more globalized <laughs> today, let's say. I hope, hoping it's more globalized. So. I don't know. Maybe you Does guys it, have some questions. We can. We, we are, you know, small committee. So, like. Uh, I would like uh, uh, to um, ask you about the Do you think it's sort of like old clothes or something that you know it's it 
old well-made clothes and things, but they've moved beyond it. Um, I don't think it was. I don't think it was because there was a suspicion of French artists or anything else. I don't. I don't think it was an anti-French thing so much. I think. Uh, I think it's more a kind of, if I can say it, it's like provincialism too. You know, always looking for the newest New York thing and you know the flashiest thing. I mean, I think that was a problem with the probably with the Hartung show at the Met that that it was. They were trying to model it on what would be popular and flashy at the moment. Hmm. And right. it didn't work. Hmm. But I don't think, you know, there really aren't answers to these questions. You know, I mean, sometimes there are, but I don't think, I mean, why those things aren't, I mean, they're, they're, it, it, that's work that's very much about writing and very, um, gestural in, in many ways and, and, and that was just probably for the moment not I don't know why they're not why why they're not being well received now except that another thing that might have something to do with it are the big galleries in Chelsea. How do you fill the walls? You can't do it with little things. So you know But the good thing with Artons is that they're basically had any receptions <laughs> in here for a long time. <laughs> I mean, at least it's a clear way. That's a good thing. But I, I think there wasn't anything against, you know, France in particular. But maybe against, not against Europe, but like kind of, you know, maybe maybe an American belief of there is the old continent, and we have to think yeah. something new that is ours. Uh, that's obviously, a, I mean, reasonable you know, cause uh, to that, and and I mean, World War Two has basically like hurted the continent badly actually uh, just as look look at Artung's biography you know that yeah. uh, there was the less energy actually uh, even today uh, I don't know the New York State seems a bit weakened compared to the strengths of I don't know China you know everyone traveling a bit in China sees the amazing energy money <laughs> strength and you know ferocity that they that make the American market like look you know a bit pretty calm. So, I mean, that's, that's a macroeconomic reason, maybe one of, one of the maybe uh, many reasons. Please. Actually, bringing up the Lefebvre gallery mm. is a case in point, because John Lefebvre basically was a kind of European outpost mm. in New York. Right. Mm. And he made a very strong point. Mm. He was an incredible salesman, salesman mm. uh, that made him a successful dealer. But the fact is, he was, he felt himself to be mm. the representer of oh. uh, European art uh, at the time. And he was successful, but it was a, an almost futile gesture mm. because he was in a context that was dead set against, basically. Mm. New York was going in a different direction. Mm. So I think it's an important point to bring in. But one thing is that, uh, what about all the Americans, probably later, all the American artists who went to Paris, like Shirley Jaffe, Norman Bloom, yeah. uh, Joe Mitchell, a whole group of them all went to Paris. Mm. <laughs> and it probably was later than the cartoon. Uh, about the same, a little bit later. But it, 20 years. Yeah. Very much that were leaving the States. Of course. Uh, which Milton Resnick. Milton Resnick. The yeah. whole group in Paris were living yeah. there. Uh, and they still felt that that was, you know, I mean, 
But what did they bring back from that, yes, do we think? What was that? No, she stayed. Years yeah. And so they were very attuned to wanting mm. to be there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, no, no, so of course. There was a real connection. And no. I, think that, you know. we, uh, I mean, Europe doesn't lose all this interest, you know, all of a sudden, of course. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> God. But, uh, but, but the, uh, the, the, when, you, when you look closer, I mean, the dialogue is definitely more complex than it looks. Yes. And it should be hard, as you said, to answer the question and to explain. Uh, how to reception through only through this, uh, you know, um, filter. That's for sure. But um, you know that. But we talk. You talk about very important artists that went just 20 years after. That's why I say he's the missing link. Is the basically is from the generation that in Europe uh, is was precocious and from a slightly different generation. Let's say again between Kandinsky and Shirley or Jeff or. Uh, you, you see, just in between. Mm -mm. So, but it's how to explain. History of reception is like, you know, alchemy. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's always complex. You can put the fact all together, and sometimes it doesn't make more sense. So you have to be quite humble against it. Thank you very much for your attention, and uh, thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>